we have a responsibility to to ourselves and our partners, if we are trying to be moral, to consider whether all of our desires are leading us to better or worse places, whether they're making us in some ways better or worse. But people want what they want, or they may be turned on by what they're turned on by. But I do think that it's worth asking questions about why you're turned on by what you're turned on by. And on a macro scale, what does it say about our society and the way that we have sex? That was Christine Emba, an opinion columnist for The Washington Post. Her new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, takes a critical look at modern sexual ethics and calls for a reassessment of contemporary norms. She spoke with Commonweal contributing writer Kate Lucky, now a senior editor at Christianity Today. Their conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal podcast. Hi, Kate. It's good to have you here to talk. Hi, Dominic. It's great to be here. Uh, So you got to speak with Christine Emba about her new book. I did. I was really excited to talk to Christine because she has written a book that simultaneously lays out some of the problems with our contemporary sexual culture and sexual ethics, which I think are pretty easy to identify and name. Um, But she also offers a positive vision for what a new sexual culture could look like. And I found that to be really refreshing. She lays out some of the alienation, some of the dissatisfaction that she and friends and other people that she interviewed in writing the book, many of them students, feel with their sexual lives. There's generally a sense that consent, while of course, absolutely necessary for any ethical sexual relationship is not enough that it's the floor and not the ceiling of what sex can be. And in identifying that problem, she lays out why we feel that way about sex, that it's something that's spiritual, that it implicates not just our bodies, but our minds and our souls, that what we do uh, in private with people that we care about has implications not just for ourselves and for that other person, but for culture and society at large. So I found her book to be full of interesting questions, full of provocations, as the title suggests. And it's something that I've already recommended to many people in my own life to get a conversation started about these issues for all of us. Okay, great. Well, why don't we take a listen to your conversation? Thanks for being with us. Hi, Christine. It's nice to be speaking with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. So you wrote a book about sex. Why did you do that? What about your own experience or the experiences of your peers or your friends about what you were reading or listening to or watching? What do you feel like wasn't being said in all of those conversations we were having as a culture already about sex? Or maybe what was being said, but not loud enough. Yeah, very good question. I mean, I never set out to be a sex writer. (laughs) I'll definitely say that. I'm an opinion columnist at the Washington Post, and my beat is ideas in society, which can mean a little bit of anything. But as a journalist, I've always been interested in questions of culture and society and ethics, as well as how we relate to each other on a personal level. And so during 2017 and 2018, I was writing a lot about the Me Too movement. I found that galvanizing in a way. It showed that many of the problems that we 
thought had been resolved by the sexual revolution or the feminist movement definitely had not gone away. And some of those cases had clear answers of what was wrong and what needed to be fixed. Harvey Weinstein, you cannot, in fact, lock people in hotel rooms and sexually assault them. That is bad. But other cases, the ones that I found more interesting, actually, surfaced tricky issues that weren't so resolved that were causing young people and young women especially a lot of pain and sadness. So I was thinking of stories like Cat Person or the Aziz Ansari Babe.net story where a woman says that She was pressured into a sexual encounter that she did consent to, sort of, but it felt like the worst night of her life in some way. I wanted to dig into those questions and those stories more deeply and take stock of where we were, figuring out what was ailing our sexual culture, why so many people could relate to these stories of sexual encounters that they were having that were depressing or even traumatic that they didn't want to have. So I wanted to ask, what assumptions were we holding about sex as a culture that weren't serving us? Where did we think the sexual revolution should have taken us and where did we end up? And then I think because of my own, you know, background and my faith, were, was there knowledge or was there tradition or something that we maybe had lost an understanding of what makes sex good and ethical that we needed to bring back? It's so helpful to hear you situate this book in the context of Me Too and the renewed conversation about consent as our primary sexual ethic. I'm just going to read a short passage from the start of your book that I think might be a helpful jumping off point for us. You write, non-consensual sex is always wrong, but the inverse is tricky. Is consensual sex always right? Not necessarily. Can consensual sex be damaging to an individual, to their partner, to society? Absolutely. It's hard to look at the woes of our sexual marketplace and say that we've got it figured out. Consent is a fig leaf and it's falling off. And then in the next paragraph, you begin with, this is not a popular thing to say. So why is it not a popular thing to say that consensual sex can still be damaging to ourselves, to our partners, and even to society at large. Yeah, it did feel a little bit taboo to write that critique because I think that part of our understanding of what has made sex better and what the sexual revolution did for us that was good was that it allowed us to be more free, to have more opportunities, to not be repressed, to not be inhibited. And the idea of consent as a baseline, a non-negotiable baseline, but a baseline from which afterwards you can do what you want, is pretty appealing. I think there was a feeling almost that consent had solved some of these problems, or at least ever-evolving definitions of consent. No means no went to yes means yes, affirmative consent, and then enthusiastic consent. And there was almost this idea that if we just got consent right, then we could continue having sex as freely and openly as we wanted to. And nobody would ask us hard questions or try and put inhibitions back or put us into a box. But saying that consent is not enough and that we have to actually ask moral questions about sex, not just was it consented to, like, was I allowed to do this thing that I want to do? You know, was the sex not actively criminal? 
but also was the sex good, not just physically good, but morally good, ethically good, forces us to make judgments about what the good is and what the good isn't. It might force us to look at our own behavior and question some of the things that we let ourselves do under the guise of, well, it was consented to. It places a lot more responsibility on individuals past just clearing that one goalpost. And that could, I think, make the activity a bit more fraught, less freewheeling, perhaps. Sure, absolutely. You get into this idea that sex perhaps should be less freewheeling or at least taken more seriously in the center of the book when you begin a series of chapters with some assertions. And I want to talk about two of those. The first one is some desires are worse than others. And the second is our sex lives aren't private. I feel like those two ideas really were braided together throughout the book. This idea that what we do in the privacy of our own bedroom impacts society and that the desires we allow ourselves to indulge or express have ramifications for the people that we live with, not just our partner in that moment or ourselves, but for culture. Can you talk a little bit about those two thesis statements as they were and how you see them fitting together, if at all? Yeah, you're totally right. Those were chapters that talking to readers seem to have raised hackles the most. And I was actually fairly surprised by that. But to start with the question of privacy, really, that conversation is about accountability and embeddedness in a way. What I'm saying there, you know, is that when we have sex totally unsituated from anyone else, it leaves people, first of all, lonely in a way. There's no recourse to outside standards to help us guide our behavior. If you're dating on dating apps, especially, and I talk about this a lot in the book, because you're not accountable to anyone, this person you're chatting with doesn't know your mom or your friend, doesn't have any reason to treat you well, people get up to all sorts of bad behavior that they might not if they thought about themselves as being embedded in uh, a community with responsibilities and norms. And I think that has not been good for our sexual culture. And then talking about some desires are better than others. I think that raised hackles in some circles because at first it was seen, to just read that phrase, was seen by some as an indictment of, say, people who are gay or who have non-mainstream sexual desires, saying that they should get back in the closet. They're they were not good people for what they desired. And that wasn't it at all, actually. I think that the sexual revolution happened for a reason. It's good that people feel more able to live their lives without repression. But I don't think that absolves us of the responsibility to question what we want. Why do we want what we want? And what would we want if we actually had the choice? And I talk about how we have, in some ways, through pornography especially, normalized acts that used to be not seen as mainstream, proclivities or fetishes that eroticize degradation or objectification or harm. And again, by relying on the idea of, well, someone consented to this, so it's not my fault. I'm not doing anything wrong. We're refusing to ask ourselves, wait. Is it actually good that I get off on causing people pain, say, or eroticizing racism or sexism or anything else? 
And I argue in that chapter that we have a responsibility to to ourselves and our partners, if we are trying to be moral, to consider whether all of our desires are leading us to better or worse places, whether they're making us in some ways better or worse. But people want what they want, or they may be turned on by what they're turned on by. But I do think that it's worth asking questions about why you're turned on by what you're turned on by. And on a macro scale, what does it say about our society and the way that we have sex if we're mainstreaming, you know, desires to harm people, say? What does that mean? And is that actually good for society? And then again, if we do mainstream these desires, they become more common. These acts spread. And what effect does that have on our sexual culture? We'll have more of Kate's conversation with Christine Emba in a minute. Is the Spirit leading you to discover your unique mission in the world? At the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego, continue to deepen your faith journey and discover your unique role in caring for our world and the Catholic Church with rigorous master's programs led by world-class scholars. FST's courses and lectures dive deep into the heart of Franciscan spirituality, theology, and social thought, integrating the Catholic faith and the Franciscan vision of civic life and church leadership. The Franciscan School of Theology offers three on-campus degrees, the Master of Theological Studies, the Master of Divinity, and Master of Arts, and an online degree, the Master of Theological Studies, with a specialization in Franciscan theology. Learn to put theology to work in the world at FST. Find true and perfect joy. Visit fst.edu for more information and to start your application today. So I don't want to give the sense that this book is all about positive negatives. You know what's wrong with our sexual culture now, right? Which you, uh, you do a wonderful job of doing that, as you've just laid out, indicting dating apps for the alienation that they might cause, indicting pornography for the desires that might normalize. But you also, at the end of the book, move towards a, a positive vision of what sex could be, and I want to talk about that in light of the conversations you have with students and with peers and with others in the book, many of them women. I love how much of the dialogue around our problems with sex, but also what sex could be is framed in these like bar conversations with your friends, because (laughs) I've had so many of those conversations myself. That's how we talk about these things. That's how we talk about these things, whispered over drinks with some sort of appetizer at the center of the table that goes untouched because we're just so engrossed in both our retellings of encounters that felt wrong for some reason, even if they were consented to, but also our too good to be true like wishes and desires for what our sex lives could look like. So I guess two questions from that. Why did you feel like it was important to include so many of those conversations with friends and with students and with others in the book? in making this argument about what sex could be. And also, what emerged from those conversations? What could a healthy, loving, generative, communal sexual ethic look like? What do people want? Right. First of all, the book is titled Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. And it's not supposed to be a provocation that I was trying to make people angry or upset, but a provocation to have 
conversations, like real and honest conversations about what our sexual culture looked like, what we thought its failings were, what we wanted from it. And I wasn't writing this book to be didactic. It was actually an investigation, not just my ideas. So to do research for this, I wanted to hear what was going on on the ground, what was happening in people's lives. So, of course, I went out and talked to people. I'm a journalist. I'm a reporter. That's what we have to do. And it was in these conversations that I really began to feel like I was getting a sense for certain threads that were running through a lot of people's pain and hurt, whether it was the woman who pulled me aside at a party and told me that the guy she was dating was choking her and she didn't know if it was okay to not like that, or women who confessed that they were having sex because like, they thought that they should to be good feminists, but it actually made them feel really bad. Or guys who said they watched porn and found that it affected their sex lives in a negative way and they weren't sure what to do about that. I really wanted to capture the voices of people who were actually experiencing the sexual culture right now to color my observations and also give clues as to where we might go. Because one of the things I thought about the Me Too moment when it happened was that there was a lot of, there's a lot of discussion of what was bad. Like, oh, wow, things seem really dark out there. Sexual culture is bad, huh? And everyone would be like, yep, yep, seems bad. <laughs> but that doesn't really tell you where to go. You need to have a positive vision to work towards, not just a negative vision to condemn. And the positive vision that I propose in the book is replacing, not replacing our standard of consent. Again, it's good and necessary. It's a great baseline. But noting that it's a floor, it's a baseline, it never should have been a ceiling. And instead of saying a negative, like, well, you just have to not assault someone, basically. I propose a positive ethic, which is willing the good of the other. Aristotle, by way of Aquinas, his definition of love, actually, and suggesting that to actually have the good and ethical sex that we desire, we should try thinking about the other person's good as much as our own. We're trying to really care for that other person. That also implicates us, of course, in trying to figure out what the good is and know the other person. But even trying to do that and failing is still several steps ahead of where we are right now. That's right. In starting to talk about this book with some of my friends, the nods of a, to that positive vision, everyone I've spoken to who's in my peer group and is thinking about these kinds of issues has agreed with that. Their next question is, how do we do that? How do we treat another person with care and respect in a sexual encounter? How do we treat ourselves with care and respect in a sexual encounter? How do we acknowledge that sex is not just something we do with our bodies, but something spiritual and something that feels really intrinsic to we are, who we are as human beings. So people are looking for concrete practices. And I feel like you motion towards a few of those at the end of the book, restraint, waiting, attention, listening, some things that we could cultivate in our own sexual lives. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those, distilling down this vision into, okay, I want to have a different sexual ethic in my life now when I go on a dating app, when I interact with a new partner, what should I do? Yeah. And I want to tack back too. And part of the, part of what was really useful about having conversations with real people about their sex lives in order to write this book was 
finding out what they really felt a better sexual world would look like. And I was surprised by how many conversations when I asked women and men, okay, so you told me about the bad things that have happened. What would a good sexual world look like or a good encounter look like to you? You know, no one ever talked about like, oh, I want this person to do this physical thing or like this act or something. It was always, oh, well, I would like a partner to care about me (laughs) or like maybe, I don't know, like listening. I think if you're listening to somebody, it's hard to be cruel to them or they would talk about empathy or some way of thinking of the other person. And that's that sort of intrinsic desire that so many people had is what drew me to this idea of a positive vision. But then, yeah, the question of how do you live it out in real life? Part of the proposition of the book, one half is talking about what a new ethic would be like, and the other half is acknowledging false assumptions we have about sex. I think the first step is simply being honest, actually, about who we are, about what sex means and what it looks like, and about what we really want. So talking to many people, there was There was this longing for sex that was meaningful or somebody who would care or even a relationship at some point, but they almost felt like they couldn't say that, like it was uncool to not be chill about things and go with the flow. And part of enacting an ethic, enacting a a particular good vision is actually admitting that you want to do it, (laughs) admitting that is real and out there and is your desire. So that I think was the first step, just being honest about how we've gotten it wrong in the past so that we can move forward. But then on a very, on a more micro level, what can we do in our day to day? One of the things I talk about a lot is commodification and how dating apps especially train you to think about sex and dating in a really transactional way, where as one girl told me about ordering a guy off of Tinder, which is such a phrase. (laughs) It says so much, but, you know, trying to retrain how we think about other people, not as just options that we're sorting through, but, you know, as real people and what might that look like? It might be relying less on apps. It might be actually spending more time with people and getting to know the person that you're dating or trying to have a relationship with before sleeping with them, actually building a foundation of, you know, care and empathy and listening not just jumping into the first thing that happens. Because also, if you want to actually be able to think about and realize someone's good, you have to know the person or know something about them, or at least that would help. So when I talk about reclaiming the pause in a later chapter, what that might say to us is, it is going to be harder to will the good of or to have real care or empathy for your one night stand whose last name you don't know. Like it might, it might be possible, but it's probably a lot harder, in which case maybe you should have less of those and hold back in relationships and develop care before going forward. Right. If the only thing you know about a person is that they're searching for the best taco in the city, which is a line from the book. <laughs> I mean, so oh many people gosh. put on their dating profiles, you might not know how to treat them as a whole person and the most intimate act we engage in as human beings. Also for the number of people who say that they're searching for the best taco in the city, like we should have found it by now. Right. (laughs) Where's the consensus on that? Yeah, come on, guys. 
because this is the Commonweal podcast, I can't let you go without asking about the role that your faith played in the ideas in this book. We talked a little bit about Aquinas earlier in passing, but what do you feel like the Catholic tradition has to bring to the questions and conclusions that you come to here? And what's worth thinking about or exploring for our listeners? Great question. In just thinking about this question, the Catholic faith and tradition has a really strong understanding of what sex should mean, that it is in fact meaningful, that it involves two people and their intrinsic humanness. There's also a strong tradition of thinking of the human dignity of the other in all encounters. So not just getting permission to do something to someone, but also thinking of them as a full human and what they deserve. And then, I mean, you're commonweal. I think this whole question is really a question of the common good, being willing to think morally about how we live our lives as individuals and how living morally or ethically ourselves can interact, you know, our whole community, our whole culture. I think the Catholic Church has a lot to say about how we're not totally autonomous beings floating in the void, but that we are all actually in relationship with each other and have a responsibility to that relationship. And so I think a lot of, and I think the rich theological and sort of philosophical tradition within the church gave me a lot of places to look for, okay, what would a new ethic look like? Is there something, are there things, you know, virtues from the past that are contained within tradition, whether it's ideas of temperance or prudence or even chastity that might actually still be relevant today? And the church was just a rich source of that for me. Thanks so much, Christine. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for having me. This is great. Christine Emma's book is Rethinking Sex, a Provocation, and it's available now. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek, and the Commonwealth staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.